Amen. Good morning. Special thanks to Taylor and Lindsay. Let's give them a round of applause. So thankful for them and their hearts to uh, teach our children how to sing and how to do it well, uh, how to do it even better than most of us uh, adults. What a great, um, great time it was. And special thanks to all the children for their courage and their hearts to sing. And I'm thankful that you're here if your family to support them. Grateful you're here and now to hear the inspired word of God. And so if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. And if you don't have one, we really do want you to grab one around you. Please do take it home with you. Make that your own. We want you to have your own copy of God's word. But we would like everybody to turn now to the book of, of Ruth. It's, uh, it, it's near the front of the Bible, the eighth, eighth book of the Bible, and uh, we want you to be there as we look at it today. Last week, we started a series, and if you had to miss, I really do encourage you to go back and listen, because that message serves as an attempt to sort of put on some 3D glasses as we look at this book, in a sense, to now, as you watch the book unfold, start to see the themes that we talked about last week unfold, and you see these principles, these themes, these teachings, these realities that the author intended, that God intended. And so I want you to meditate on those, to marinate in those, to ponder those, to think about them, to rejoice in them as we're reading this book. And so once again, do go back and listen if you weren't here last week. And uh, as we go through these, these weeks here in Ruth, which will be five weeks, including last week, we want this to have a lasting impact on your life. We want this book of the Bible, the inspired word of God that God made, wrote through his human instruments to have a lasting impact on your life. We don't want you to just hear and to understand this. We want you to be changed by God and his word. And so now that we have this bird's eye view of this real life scene, this real life historical scene in the life of this family that we watched unfold, now that we have these realities and these treasured themes in our minds, we're going to watch as this now begins to play out. So let's read together Ruth chapter one, Ruth chapter one, and that's where we'll be this morning. Ruth chapter one, starting in verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, 
We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. What a, an incredible chapter of God's word. And I've titled today's message, Life Changes, Decisions Are Made, and God Is At Work. Life changes, decisions are made, and God is at work. In a dark and difficult time, in confusing circumstances, God is sovereignly and faithfully and providentially carrying out his will in the lives of his people. He's restoring the lives of his people, weak and insignificant people. If, if you are in Christ, in all your sufferings and in all your losses and in all your disappointments and in all your confusion, in all your waiting and all your wondering and all your questioning, God is at work. God is at work. His all sovereign, all powerful, almighty hand is provident providentially working in the lives of his people to bring about redemption for his people and glory for himself. And though at times, and all of us feel it, that God may be absent, he's nowhere to be found, he doesn't feel near, he feels like he's forsaken you, if you are one of his people, he has not forsaken you. He is faithful to his promises, namely in his son. He is gracious and merciful to his people. He is committed. And so as you follow his righteous decrees, as you submit to his sovereignty, as you accept your suffering, as you remain faithful in your heart and in your actions, as you trust the Lord's complete sovereignty and power, you can be confident that God is at work in your life. God is at work. Even though you can't see him, it doesn't mean he's not there and it doesn't mean he doesn't care. 
If he didn't care, he wouldn't have sent his son to pay for your sins. And so as we see the lives of these characters, if, as we see the, the people here, as we see the Lord's work unfold in the midst of these trials that we're about to study, we can have confidence that God is sovereign, completely sovereign. He is working in every detail in his providence, and he's doing so for the good of his chosen people. He's redeeming lives. He will always be faithful and gracious. And so I'm praying that the Lord would minister to you as you watch this author tell us this story of the lives of these people and that we would glean these principles that we can see here and learn and so that God would have his way in our lives as we do. And as we look at this, and as God works as we look at this, in this scene, we're going to see a few things as the story unfolds. We're gonna see loss. We're gonna see loss. And we'll see loyalty. And we'll see lament but we'll also see leading. And so let's open this story now and look at the loss. Verses one through five. It says, in these days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his sons were Malon and Kilian, and they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. As you begin, as we begin, and as the author begins this story, the author begins here by bringing us back to the time of its happening. You can almost hear the sound effects of the harp playing, right? As we're brought back into this time frame. And we're brought back to the days when the judges ruled. The days when the judges ruled. That's where the story takes place. That's where the author brings us. And you can learn about these days by reading the book of Judges and really the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel. But this story is taking place within that time frame, within that book. And it's a time that lasted from about 1390 BC to about 1043 BC. It was pre-monarch pre-king. It was the 300 years before Israel's first king, Saul. And though there were a slight, uh, there was a few slightly commendable judges during that time, this was actually a time in Israel's history when Israel lacked godly leadership, when Israel lacked moral commitment, and as a result, in this time in Israel's history, it was marked by immorality. It was marked by idolatry. It was marked by anarchy. And inevitably, it was marked by apostasy, a people turning away from the Lord. That was the time here. And the judges are not as you might think about judges. Judges were mainly these military leaders. And they were supposed to be mediators between Yahweh and his sacred people. They were to be mediators between him and them. And they were to administer justice and leadership. And they were to govern and they were to execute social and political and religious and civil laws. And they were to deal with the oppression of the other nations on God's people. They were to protect God's people. And in all of their commitments... They balked. It's a sad picture of what happens to people under ungodly leadership. 
As the leader goes, so the people go, right? And so Samuel, a prophet, was alive during this time and in a form of leadership during this time. Now, God, during this time, would eventually establish a king over his people. But the reason why he would establish a king over his people is largely because of his people's rejection of him as their king. A rejection of God as their king. Here's what 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9 says. It's a good summary. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and Ramon and said to him, behold, you, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Those are God's words. Accordingly to all the de- according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up to Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you now then obey their voice. Only you shall sol- solemnly warn them and show them that the ways of the king who shall reign over show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so they want this king because they've rejected God as their king. They want to be like all the other nations. That's the time period. And if you want an even more concise summary of this time, just look one page over from Ruth chapter one at the end of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Just one page over. You don't even probably have to turn it. 21, 25, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the summary of the time period. So this is how the book opens. And his, God's people have been unfaithful. This is the time period in which this is taking place. And so even though the author is not necessarily highlighting this detail, it's important to know because the question as we open this book begins to swirl in your mind. God's people have been unfaithful to him. Would God still be faithful to them? Would God still be faithful to his plan and to his people? That's the question that begins to swirl in your mind with this opening. Is God going to remain faithful to his promises and to his plan and to his people? That's the question. Would he give them the leadership they needed, though they didn't deserve it? Would he be present in their lives? Would he restore their lives? Would he show them grace? The author doesn't spend too much time here. It's not the point, but we can't lose the forest through the trees with some of these details, but this is subtly shaping our perception of what's happening here. You're beginning to question God's commitment to his people. And so we're given more with the fact that there was a famine in the land. What land? Well, we learn in just a minute, it's the land from which these people come from. It's a significant land. It's the land of God's people. It's the land of Canaan. It's the promised land of Abraham and all of his descendants. It's the land that God told Moses would be flowing with milk and what? Honey. It's the promised land, the land of which would include the the place of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. It's in Judah. It was the chosen 
of the 12 tribes, Judah was, the chosen one, and it's especially contrasted with the tribe of Benjamin in the book of Judges. And so the hope of God's people lays with a king that would come from Bethlehem, the tribe of Judah. And the mystery begins to unfold here. The author has your wheels greased and and starting to turn. No bread in the house of bread, no milk and honey in the land flowing with milk and honey. The place in which God's promised king should come from the chosen tribe. And we watch suffering unfold. Is God going to be faithful to his people? Has God revoked his promises? What about his care? Is he working here? Is he present? What's happening to God's people? What is God doing? And the questions and the mystery starts to turn of whether or not these are chance events or whether this is the hand of the Lord. Are these natural events? Is this God's discipline? Is this God's providence? Is God doing good to his people? Is he absent? Has he forsaken them? Is he behind this? The questions begin to swirl. Is this chance or his providence? And if it's his providence, what's his heart behind it? You ever have questions like that in the midst of your confusion and your suffering? Is God involved here or is he not? Is he committed or is he not? Is he on my side or is he not? Is he with me or is he not? Am I his enemy or is he doing good? These are the questions that begin to swirl. And then we're told that there's a man of Bethlehem in Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And so in the midst of the famine, we're told that there's a man who led his whole family, his wife, his two sons, out of God's promised land and their home and into the land of Moab. Is, is this another act of unrighteousness, just like the people of the, of the time in the book of Judges? These questions begin to turn. Moab was a place that started out with connection to God's people. It was founded by Abraham's nephew, who? Lot. And who, when they were journeying to the promised land, though they were both prosperous, Lot was living in Abraham's shadow. And so Lot was given the first option. What land do you want? And instead of Canaan, he saw this fertile land near Sodom and Gomorrah. And he headed east. And then in Genesis chapter 19, Lot's daughters commit this devious ancestral act. And it resulted in the ancestors of the eventual place of Ammon and Moab. And so what we're seeing here is this family go to Moab. And the reader begins to relate to the realities of Moab, understands them and thinks about the past of Moab and its establishment. And the question begins to grow deeper here in this mystery. The questions begin to stir. Is this a sinful move? Is this suffering coming from God's punishment on this people? Have they done something wrong here? And you begin to relate to this. Because now the tables have turned on Israel. Think about this. The chosen land is without bread, is without food. God's people are the ones who are suffering. And yet the ones who have a different God, the land that Lot chose is now the fertile land. And so the question begins to stir even deeper. Is God forsaken his own people? Why are the wicked prospering? And the land is a very significant theme in, in the scriptures. If it's really established in the book of Genesis. When the land is prospering, what does that mean? It means God's favor is on what? His people. It's an extension of, of God's disposition towards his people. And so is the suffering an act of God's judgment? Was this choice to sojourn to Moab, to care for his family, the right choice, the wrong choice in God's eyes? Or, or how about just like in the book of Job, God's ways 
are just his ways. They're not necessarily disciplined. He's being faithful. He's sovereign. He's purposeful in his providence. He works in his people's lives through suffering and he redeems them. He's committed. He's faithful. And you think back to even Jacob who left the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 42. It took a long journey to Egypt. And Overall, God said he meant that whole thing for their good. So is this for their good? Or is this God's punishment on a disobedient family? These questions are left unanswered intentionally at this point. And so we're told that the name of this man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And the mystery is amplified here now because Elimelech's name means this, God is king. This is Elimelech's name. And so what God's people in this day have rejected, what they want to substitute him as, what perhaps they're being punished for rejecting. And yet this man who led his family to Moab to survive is maybe the one of the only ones left who is still wanting God as his king. Perhaps this isn't punishment at all. This is just God's sovereign good purpose and God's good plan. Names were significant in Israel. And ironically, Naomi's name means pleasantness. And not so ironically, many have suggested the Hebrew names of the two sons, which rhyme in Hebrew, means sickly and weakly or pining and, and finished. Sickly or weakly and then pining or, or finished. So maybe in God's providence, these names clue us in on what happened in their, to them and their, their fate here and that we'll see in just a moment. Maybe this is God's providence to a, bring about suffering in the lives of people to accomplish his plan. And yet the realities of suffering and sickness have taken place and they were still part of his plan. Once again, we see here that God is cluing us in and directing our attention, but giving us no final answers. And so we're told once again, and by the way, repetition in the Old Testament especially in Old Testament narrative, is very intentional by the author. It aims to show us and teach us what is here, the principles that we are to learn because the teaching is not necessarily explicit in the way that maybe an epistle would be. And so when you see repetition, you are to especially take note of it. And he's emphasizing what he wants the reader to take note of. And he says here that they're Ephrathites. Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem speaking of uh, the Christmas season, you guys know the Micah 5-2 passage where Ephrathah is used. They're from the land of Bethlehem and Judah. That's what the author is telling us again. So before anything else happens in this story, listen now, God's chosen people through whom the promises are made, the people through whom the king is supposed to come during a spiritually dark period of unfaithfulness, during the judges, during a puzzling famine, they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. And how long did they remain there? Probably just as long as necessary is what their intention was. But we're going to see how long the family did. And so the question is, what is God doing? Is God working on behalf of his people or is he not? But then look at what happens here. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, what? He dies. There's no message of judgment here. As is oftentimes placed in situations of suffering in the Old Testament. There's no mention of, of judgment. And so when the punishment occurs, you're asking the question, maybe this is just a natural event. And the questions continue because Naomi is now, look at this reality. Here's the most important reality of it. Naomi is left with her two what? Sons. The focus really isn't on Elimelech's death. The focus is now on Naomi's reality. She's left without her two sons. That's the focus here. She's now a widow. 
She's a widow, probably something that she never expected to be. She never expected to be a widow, but she is one. She looked around and she saw a bunch of other people. She probably would have never thought that she would be the one who was left without her husband. She didn't expect this to be part of her plan. And now without her husband's leadership, she's the mother of two boys. And widowhood is a big deal in the time of Israel. It's a big deal. Unfortunately, the reality of widowhood was taken seriously, or the unfortunate reality of widowhood was taken seriously. And you see just one example in 1 Kings 17 where there's a widow, a widow of Zarephath and is, she's left with her two sons and when Elijah arrives to meet her, she's, she's preparing for her and her son to die because she's not provided for, cared for, protected, or led. James and the other places of scripture you know make a big deal about caring for what? The widow. And so the effect that their father was gone, you have questions here now of whether or not he would approve of what these two sons will now do, which is take for themselves a couple of locals. Two Moabite wives. One name was, one's name was Orpah and the, others, and the other name was, was Ruth. And so you question, are they doing something wrong here? Are they making the wrong choice? Is this a sinful choice? Is God's hand of suffering on them because of, of their sin? And so nothing in the scriptures expressly prohibited taking Moabite wives in God's law, but you begin to wonder whether they're included in the principle. There's a principle, Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, even though Moabite, uh, Moabite women are not in the list there, the, the principle is protecting from intermarrying with idolatrous people. And so yet these boys do. They marry these two Moabite women. Malon marries Ruth. You're told that in chapter four, verse 10, even though we're not given specifics here. And Killian marries Orpah. And so Ruth, whose name most likely means friendship, and Orpah, whose name possibly relates to the idea of, of perfume or of good fragrance or to the nape of the neck, which is really the focus, maybe highlighting the turning of the neck, which is what maybe she'll do here in just a few minutes. And so all of this is highlighting what's taking place in the lives of these families. And they've lived there for about 10 years. They live there now for about 10 years. Naomi, the widow, Malon and Killian and their two wives, Orpah and Ruth, and things seem like they could not get any, what? Worse. Surely at this point, God would have mercy on them. Surely at this point. And yet God's grace in their life might look different than what they expect. It often does, and we only see what he's doing when we look back in retrospect. So here at this point, verse five, Malon and Killian both die. And the Hebrew word for this, as the term is used for his, their sons here, for, for Naomi's son in verse five, it's an unusual word for married men to describe sons. It's usually referring to small children. It's a different word than is used in verse three. And so what the author is conveying here is the depth of Naomi's loss. These were her boys. These were her boys. And though they were married, they were still her children. Add to this that within those 10 years, they had no children. Not one marriage without children, but two. And if you've experienced this desire not being fulfilled, you know the confusion and the questions and the sorrow that comes. 
10 years, you know, is the period that Abraham and Sarah waited to have children before taking matters into their own hands. But this family did not take matters into their own hands. But again, this is the connection to Genesis. Just like land, the problem of barrenness is highlighted and developed in, in, in the book of Genesis. It's a, it presents an important theological reality that children are a gift from God. And so what does this mean? Is God against them? And in chapter four, verse 13, just turn to chapter four, verse 13. It says this, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and what happened? The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Conception's a gift from the Lord. So going back to chapter one, what does this mean here? And the reality is setting in, the Lord of the land, the Lord who gives conception. And even the, Job acknowledged that the death of man is the Lord's doing, right? The Lord is the one who gives and the Lord is the one who does what? Takes away. And this story is certainly reminiscent of Job. And what we should be consumed with at this point is told at the end here in verse five, that a woman, a woman, a woman, is left with her two sons and without her two sons and without her husband. And so this is sudden tragedy. This is more questions than answers. This is the why question filling our minds at every point. They're stunned by death. They're left without answers. And the reader at this point is left by the author intentionally just like the family. You are just like the family at this point as the reader of this, left without explanation. You're left without explanation. You're left without reason. And so the family is feeling we're trying our best. Things are hard. We're suffering and we're left without answers of why. Have you been there? Are you there now? And the reality is you're not alone. You're not alone. And so the question is, in this loss, is God still showing his loving, gracious faithfulness to his people? Is he still choosing to work in the lives of his people, redeeming them? Is he still going to be gracious, fulfilling his promises to his people? Will he still be loyal to them? And so the picture of loyalty now comes up and the questions of loyalty start to stir in our mind. And so now we see the loyalty. And if you're wondering how in the world are we gonna get through all this, don't worry. We had to sit in the loss for a while because the whole thing really rests on it. So we see the loyalty now in verses six through 18. And we read in verse six, after we hear about all of this loss, that there's a woman in the field of Moab with her daughters. There's a woman in the field of Moab. Don't miss this. It's never accidental that in Hebrew literature, there's repetition. We already know they're in Moab, right? And so the author is telling you once again that this family is in Moab and now these, this woman with her two daughters-in-law are in the fields in Moab. This woman in the fields of a Gentile land with no provision and no protection all the way from the fields of Moab hears that Yahweh has visited his people. Yahweh, this is the first breath of fresh air. Yahweh, Yahweh has visited his people and he has given them food. Yahweh's involved here. Yahweh's presented here. He's visited. It's a Hebrew word that's used at times to describe God's judgment, at other times to describe his gracious blessing. In either case, it's a powerful, dramatic involvement that would ultimately bring changes to a situation. 
And so the Jewish people thought that nothing was by chance. They knew that everything was an act of Yahweh's hand. It wasn't just that rain came. It wasn't just that crops are growing. It's that Yahweh is doing something. He's the sovereign one. Remember in, uh, when Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 uses this word and it's reminiscent of when he tells his family, reassures his family that God would bring his people back to the land of promise. He would, he would visit them and care for them. God visiting is God actively, intimately keeping his promises. And the Israelites acknowledged that the change in their situation is not just chance. It's not just natural events. Nothing is by accident. Nothing is just a result of fate, but everything is a result of divine intervention of God in the affairs of his people. And so God brought food back to Bethlehem. And if he's the sovereign one who has the power to bring food back to Bethlehem, then he's also the one who did what? Caused the famine. He's the one who withheld it. And so the fog begins to settle and begins to fade as we begin to notice that God is actually at work here. God is actually at work here. The work of God's providence, his sovereignty, though it's not seen, it's present. He's still carrying out his will. He's still working in the lives of his people. And so they all three set out, these women do, just picture it, on the way to Canaan, to Bethlehem, to Judah, which is God's country. And yet Naomi, verse eight, stops at some point, tells the two girls to go, what? Go back. And Naomi tells the girls to turn, why? Well, this is a purely an act of loyalty and love. This is a a love of choice. It's for the good of another. This is righteousness and faithfulness and grace and love purely for the welfare of someone else. It makes it clear to them that Naomi does that they need to go home. Where do they need to go home to their mother's house? Why mother? Well, mothers were involved in the preparation for marriage. And so what this is meaning is Naomi knows that they need to get what? Married. If they want to have a life again in the midst of their suffering, they need to get married. And Naomi is caring for them. Naomi's prayer for them here is that Yahweh, verse 8, would show Hesed to them. And Hesed, it's steadfast love and faithfulness, but it's more than ordinary loyalty. It's, it's often used in God's gracious choosing and loyalty and love and commitment to his people. It's divine initiative for his people without his people deserving it. And in a sense, as we show that kind of faithfulness to each other, it's caring for the welfare of another person without regard to self. And Naomi is showing this loyalty to these girls. Yahweh's not their God, but Yahweh is Naomi's God. And through this suffering, that loyalty did not change. And so Moab was dominated by this false god, Kamash. And Naomi knew that Yahweh's jurisdiction, his sovereignty is not limited to Bethlehem or Judah, that his sovereignty even moves into the jurisdiction of Moab. And Naomi wants this great goodness and loyalty of Yahweh to work in in her daughter's lives. And so she's showing this loyalty to her daughters-in-law. She's asking Yahweh to be loyal to them, to show steadfast love to them. She's praying that God would show it to them, not a faithfulness based on obligation and law, but on love and commitment and grace and faithfulness. And they would need it because they're widows. And they had to be shown love and faithfulness through having husbands. And so Naomi prays this and desires this for them. And so we begin to see some answers to these questions. Listen now, stay with me. We begin to see some answers now to these questions. It's a time 
of dark spiritual reality for God's people. And yet God is present. God is involved. The famine was clearly a work of his hand. And though we can't see him working, he's doing something. Were they wrong for going to Moab? Well, it seems at this point that this was actually a faithful family. And maybe the man whose name means God is king was actually seeking to do something noble, which is provide for his family. And these women that we're seeing here look exemplary. And women are a reflection of their husbands. And so maybe the men were actually exemplary. There's no indication here of punishment whatsoever, just sovereignty, just providence. Though God is hidden, maybe he's working. There's loyalty between the women, but the question is, is there loyalty from God? Okay, he's at work here, but is he doing good work on behalf of his people? And maybe you've been to that place where you say, I know God's behind this. I know he's sovereign. I know he's in charge. I know everything comes from his hand. But my question is this, is he working for my good? Is he working for my good? I'm gonna be loyal. I'm gonna be faithful. But will he be loyal and faithful? And so... Verse nine, loyalty continues to be the theme. Naomi's loyalty leads her to pray that Yahweh would grant them rest. Rest in the Old Testament is describing more than sleep. This word here particularly, it's settlement, it's security, it's freedom, it's anxiety, from, uh, freedom from anxiety and uncertainty and pain. And, and how would this come from that for them? It's gonna come from having a husband. And, and so now they're weeping they're contemplating what's transpired in their lives. They're thinking back as to all that's taken place. And they have now this loyalty duel, right? In verses 10, 11, 12, and the beginning of 13, they say to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your, your husbands? You might say, what does that mean? Well, remember I said last week that uh, Leverite marriage is not necessarily in play in the situation in, with Ruth and Boaz. It, it, it's, the principles are there, but it's not exactly fitting the parameters. Well, here it looks like this whole thing with Naomi and the two daughters-in-law is a picture of, of what would be in Leverite marriage, that the brothers would be raised up to take care of the, the widows of their deceased brothers. And so that's what Naomi is, is referring to here. And she says this in, in verse 12, if I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, verse 13, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What Naomi is saying here is, I want your good. And this isn't gonna work out if you come with me for you. And she says bitter here, it's figurative language. It's the heart crushing situation that they've all experienced. It's describing her life. And so here we're witnessing these young women suffer. Naomi's witnessed it. And she says, it's even harder for me. I can never have a husband. I'll never have uh, probably a husband or, or children again, and watching you suffer has become very difficult for me. But she's making explicit here, listen now, what we have wondered this whole time. Verse 13, the hand of who? The Lord has gone out against me. Yahweh's hand is at work. Yahweh's hand is at work. This is not misfortune or fate or bad luck. Though Naomi, listen now, though Naomi didn't fully understand, Yahweh's hand is at work. And this underlies the whole conviction of the book that none of this is happening by chance. But what did she feel like? That it wasn't only Yahweh at work, but that his hand was what? Against her. 
That's the question here. I know he's at work. I know he's sovereign. I know he's working. There's no question about that. The question is, is he what? Against me. Is he against me? Has he forsaken me? Has he become my enemy? That's the question that Job felt, the Elijah felt, Jeremiah felt, and oftentimes that we feel. And what could be worse? What could be worse than your God's hand being against you, right? In your suffering. The truth of the matter is, if you are in Christ, his hand is not against you. Let me relieve that tension for you. You might be suffering. You might not know what is going on, but he's not against you because he promises. In Romans 8.31, we know that God is what? For us. God is for us. And so let me move through this. Finally, Naomi dissuades Orpah. There's no indication that Orpah is doing something wrong here. Logically, we've already understood who she really is, but what she's acting here is as a foil for Ruth. There's an Old Testament narrative, what we call a foil, who is someone who is highlighting the exemplary character of another one, right? Like Lot and Abraham. In, in relation to Lot, we see that Abraham's character is very different. And here, in relation to Orpah, we see the realities of Ruth's commitment. And she says this, that she's gonna go to Judah Instead of remain in Moab, she's going to take on the Israelites as her people instead of the Moabites. She's going to take on Naomi as her mother instead of her own mother. She's going to be potentially single instead of take matters into her own hands. And she's going to choose Yahweh instead of Kamash. There is really no obvious advantage here except for just an act of loyalty. This woman is of noble character. This is Proverbs 31 on full display. But I want you to see this in verse 16. This is concise and powerful in the Hebrew. What, the, what is being said here by, Naomi, by Ruth is this. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where she's gonna lodge is not just, I'm gonna stay there overnight and have a place to sleep. She's essentially saying your life is going to become what? My life. And so the question is, did she put her faith in Yahweh? Well, I think the answer is in verse 17, where she uses Yahweh's name, not just a more general term for God. And I think at this point, we can say that Ruth is turning from Chemosh and putting her faith in the personal God of Israel, Yahweh. And so maybe God is working here to do some work in the lives of people. Maybe God is at work for his people's good. I wanna move on because as we see the loyalty between these people and as we wonder if God is being loyal to them and as we see Ruth put her faith and even loyalty in the hands of Yahweh, we see in verses 19 through 21 a lament. We see lament. When you're wondering if God is working for your good, you know he's at work, you know he's doing something, you know he's sovereign, you know this is not by chance, you know that the suffering is possibly the hand of Yahweh, but you're wondering, is this against you? What it leads to oftentimes is what? Lament. Look at verse 19 through 21 quickly. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the almighty has brought calamity upon me? What we see here is really Naomi describe how she really feels. Listen, listen now, we're almost done. This is Naomi describing how she really feels. As she's made the journey to the house of bread, to the land of her people, to their God, Yahweh, it says in verse 19 that the whole place was what? 
stirred. Stirred is really, this word here is, it's not pity, it's delight. They're excited to see Naomi. They're excited to see her because she's been gone for a long time and they didn't know whether they'd ever see her again. This is of great excitement. And yet Naomi in response, verse 20 says this. She complains. She knows what God has done. She's probably embarrassed. She probably has sad memories of being back home. And the wordplay here in the Hebrew is this. Mara, call me Mara. The Almighty has severely marred me. In a sense, she's saying, call me bitter because the Almighty has made me what? Bitter. Made my life bitter. She knows God is sovereign and she feels like God is against him, her. And she's questioning the Lord's purposes and ways. This is how it feels. You know that it's okay to lament in our suffering. Job says this in Job 6:26. Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job is saying this, don't focus on my words and my suffering. They're like wind. They're like wind. Just take them with a grain of salt. And I think what we're seeing here in these verses is that Naomi is lamenting. She knows God is sovereign and over all things. She knows that this has to be a work of, her, of his hand. And she's wondering and questioning and feeling like God's hand is what? Against her. But what's interesting here is that she uses the name of God here as Shaddai for the first time. And you know what Shaddai pictures? God is the Almighty One. He's got the sovereign power to cause anything in the universe to happen, which also means he's got the power to what? prevent anything from happening. And so the picture just continues. God is at work here. He can't not be. He is the sovereign one. He has the power to do anything and to prevent anything. It doesn't seem that this is a result, as a result of, of their sin, it seems to be that God is just working his plan in the lives of his people. The question is, again, is he doing his people what? Good. Is he their enemy? The lament is legitimate here. This is good theology. You don't want someone else behind your suffering. You don't want someone else behind it. You don't want someone else to have power over God. You want a good, sovereign God to be over your suffering. And that's where the sovereignty of God in all things is a comfort to those who embrace it. Shaddai can do all things. He does all things. He can prevent all things. And yet they find themselves in this situation. As we close this section here, what's interesting is that Ruth is not mentioned when Naomi is lamenting. And so the question begins to swirl here. Is, is Ruth even significant to this picture? Is Ruth significant to Naomi at all? Has Naomi maybe lost sight of the fact that her daughter-in-law is with her? Is her determination and her loyalty and her faith in Yahweh and her devotion to Naomi going to make any difference at all? And that's what you begin to notice. Let me move on to verse 22 just to close us. Here's what we've seen so far. Just think through this. Loss filled with question and confusion. Loyalty between people, but questioning the loyalty of God. He's at work, he's sovereign, he's over all things, but is he working for the good of his people? Lament 
it feels like God is indeed against me. But as we close this chapter, here's how the author leaves us. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of what? Barley harvest. And anybody who knows the book at this point begins to say, maybe God is working all of this for his good purposes to bring about redemption in the lives of his people. Because this is perfect timing. This makes you stop, shake your head, and realize in all of these questions that you've had so far, God is at work. He's been behind all of this. And he is working on behalf of his people, even in their sufferings, even when we can't understand, even when it may not be a as a result of sin and discipline, the Lord's just choice. He is faithful. He is committed. He is showing his grace to his people. And we know that he is working now this plan that's going to accomplish not only redemption in the lives of his people, but his ultimate plan of redemption for sinners. And so at the end of this, you begin to say that God is indeed working for the good of his people. That's where the author wants to leave you. And so as we close, here's my encouragement to you, is that if you are one of God's chosen people, you are in Christ. And it may be a time of suffering for you. It may be a time where you are questioning. You know God's hands at work. You believe in the doctrine of sovereignty and providence. You know though God isn't hidden, he's at work. You believe he is faithful but you begin to wonder whether or not his work is actually for your good. And the way that you feel is that he's against you. If you are in Christ, my encouragement to you is to believe the truth that God is for you, that God is working for your good and you can look to him, you can trust him, you can turn to him and you can acknowledge his complete sovereignty you can trust that he's providentially working in every detail of your life to bring about your ultimate good, his great redemptive plan in your life. And you can commit all your ways to following him as you trust him. And let me say this as we close. If you're not in Christ, let me tell you this. God is still working to save sinners. And have you ever thought that maybe all of your suffering and all your hardships and all your trials that you're going through is perhaps the work of God in your life to draw you to himself? My encouragement to you is that you wouldn't discount your sufferings as maybe mere chance. Do you go through, are you continually going through hardships? Is your life hard? Does it seem like you can't catch your footing? And you just continue to look to your own strength, your own efforts, your own ways. Could it be that God is perhaps working in your life to draw you to himself for salvation? My encouragement to you is that you would turn to him, that you acknowledge his complete sovereignty, that you would trust in what he's done to bring about Christ to save sinners, and that you would commit your life to following him in all your ways. Church, as we close, be confident and be encouraged that though you might have a lot of questions in your suffering, God is doing a good work in the lives of his people. He's committed to your good. And we're gonna watch that unfold as we continue on in this book. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray by your grace, by your mercy, that you would just take this effort to explain all of this and that you would do what you will with it, that you would bring about salvation in those who are lost, that you would bring about sanctification and encouragement and strength and comfort in the lives of your people. 
and that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in the fact that you are working on our behalf for our good. Even though it might not feel like it, even though we might be confused, even though it might feel like you're against us, you're faithful to your people, you are faithful to your promises, and you are faithful to bring about good in our lives. Lord, you are restoring and redeeming all those who are in you. You are doing away with the old and you are bringing in the new. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you and trust you as we learn this great, wonderful truth in this book, that you are doing things in our lives and though we don't have all the answers for our sufferings, in Christ, we can be confident that you care and we can be confident that you are working for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.